Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 8. We'll be looking at both chapters 8 and 9 tonight, but not reading all of the text. We'll read through a good bit of it piece by piece, but it will take a little bit of time to set that up in an introduction. So I ask you to go with me before the Lord in prayer first. Holy God, we come now before your word. Would we be humble and reverent, thirsty, wanting to see and understand and be changed to grasp the power of the reality that you present here, that it would make it down into the core of our being, not just affecting the exterior and the actions, but, but our attitudes, our thoughts, our, our, our values, and who we are, that we would conform to the image of Christ our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, 24 years ago this December, my life changed drastically. I raised my right hand, and I promised to support and defend the Constitution of the United States as I enlisted in the Army. The following summer, I entered basic training, and I began as a raw recruit, really only a soldier in name. But by the end of those short nine weeks, I came out a changed person. Now, FTX capped off this transformation, like to use acronyms in the Army, Field Training Exercise, was the final challenge where you put all of your basic training together. And so it started with an eight-plus-mile road march with our gear. Then you get out to the site, and you, you dig a hasty fighting position. You sleep under the stars for two nights. You, you tackle various challenges during the day. You know, you're, you're switching off with your battle buddy guarding at night, so you get maybe four hours of sleep if you're, you're lucky. And then and you pack it all up, and you ruck back to the barracks. It's kind of like a, like a mini crucible. It's not nearly as intense as the Marines, but it gives you that idea. Now, remember, as we packed up and marched back that night, we were weary from the field exercises, the lack of sleep, the, the long road marches. And I remember rucking doggedly up those last few miles. And then there was that final hill. But instead of slowing down, we picked up. You see, at the top, there was music playing, something with a, with a good beat. We could see life on the top of the hill. And so our whole company, 200-plus recruits, march up that hill. And at the top was our battalion commander. He was so far above us, he might as well have been the president of the United States. And he was standing before this fire. It's dark. It's late. I'm physically exhausted, but I'm no longer tired. And our commander speaks as a hush settles over the troops. And he, he tells us, what it has been to go through this basic training. And, and during this time, one by one, he takes out these swords out of this fire. And each one increases in sharpness and quality. And the first one is blunt. And he said, the goal of basic training is to shape you. And he pulls it out. And when you arrived, you were unwieldy and blunt like this sword. Puts it aside. And he pulls the next one out with an edge. And he says, as you became more disciplined, you sharpened like this sword. And then he pulls out a saber polished and refined. He says, now you are finally forged, sword, honed and ready to meet life's challenges. Well, the army designed the basic training experience culminating with FTX capped with the forging ritual to shape me and its recruits. And I left there a changed person. My attitude was different. My physique was different. The way I looked at life was different. The way I carried myself, even the way I wore a baseball cap was different. And here's what I'm getting at. I encountered a new reality, and it drastically changed my life. 
You could view the whole basic training as a, a rite of passage where I entered one way and came out very different. There is power in a new reality. What you believe is real and true. That shapes you. Before we go to Scripture, I want to examine the way the world views reality. The vision of what life is, what's important, what's beautiful, what's worth living for. Think about what the message you get today. Right, the reality is there's no ultimate truth. You revolve from animals. This is all there is. And so you must find your own meaning. You must not be weighed down by duties or commitments or connections to others. I heard there was a, a movie called Barbie that just came out. You might have, might have known that. Uh, I didn't see it, but I watched two reviews on it, so that makes me an expert, right? Um, but, but one of the things in, in the Barbie movie is it begins with you know, Barbie and Ken. And Ken has this unhealthy relationship hanging on Barbie. And so as they go along, there's these tensions and encounters. And you might hope that at the end, you know, Ken and Barbie learn to live together in a harmonious relationship. But, but actually, no, what happens is, is that Ken learns he needs to find himself. He can't be and Ken. It's got to be Barbara and, they say, Ken up. Ken is enough on himself. And so, Ken, don't hang on Barbie. Don't be Barbie and Ken. Pursue your own identity and so create your own reality. And how do you do this, Disney fans? You follow your heart. You look deep into your feelings and you create yourself. Or a passage here today, Leviticus 8 and 9, tells a very different story. It contains a rite of passage where God himself creates a new reality. And it is a powerful truth that directly contradicts this vision of the self-created reality you hear all around you today. So we're going to begin by reading these first four verses in just a minute. One more comment of introduction here. If, you, if you've been reading Leviticus straight through by this time, you, you might be ready to throw in the towel. The first five chapters is on sacrifices, which are very repetitious. And then you get two more chapters about additional laws for those same sacrifices, but this time from the priest's point of view. Now, in these chapters, it talks about those sacrifices again. And in our get-to-the-point society, it can be hard to appreciate the power of repetition, but repeat it does. But there's also something new going on. Chapter 8 does something different. See if you can spot it compared to the old ones. It's hard, but just listen as we read the first four verses. Leviticus chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, so far, if you've been reading through Leviticus, you will hear this phrase over and over again. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the people of Israel. You hear that phrase says, speak three times, this triple speaking. There's this tell them, this is how you approach a holy God. This is how you are holy. You're longing for Eden. This is how you return into his presence. So there are these instructions, and now it moves to commands. Take. Assemble. And the Lord does, as Moses does, as the Lord commands. Now, So do you see what's different there? Starting in chapter 8, these are the only part of Leviticus that's written in a story form where something is happening. It's a narrative. The next three chapters tell what happens when Israel carries out God's instructions. 
And so this is a key point of the book that could be hidden in, hidden plain sight for us because your eyes might glaze, glaze over of another reading of sacrifices and what to do with entrails. But this is a climax where God makes good on his promise that he will be with his people in their presence. And, and here we'll see he will appoint or ordain priests who can approach him through sacrifice and not be destroyed by his holiness. So this is a story of a rite of passage. This is a ceremony. It's a ritual. And in verse 2, Aaron and his sons come into the tabernacle, more or less as ordinary Israelites. But when it's all over, they emerge a new priesthood. They are changed. There is a new reality. Now they may approach God on his terms and he will meet with his people. So tonight I want us to ask, what is required for this reality and then why does it matter? I want us to explore this unusual passage like humble detectives examining the clues, reverently asking, what is the Lord saying here? So let's look at two things that's required for this new reality. The first is consecration. As we read the next section of scripture, notice what happens to Aaron and their sons. There will be four things in this chapter, and three of them are in this next passage. We'll read from 8 to 13. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece he set the Urim and the Thummim. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all of its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. What you see here, you see washing, anointing, clothing. These are all actions that show that God have reserved Aaron and his sons for a special purpose. The washing sets them apart as clean. In a couple sermons, we'll, we'll get much deeper into this. But, but just for now, they're going from an unclean, unfit state to clean where they're suitable or fit. And just as a sacrifice must be washed, so the men, if they prepare to become priests, must be washed. But they're not yet special. They, they need to be anointed. All of Israel is supposed to be clean. But the priests, they were anointed. And so... Moses takes the oil and pours it over the tabernacle items and and then on Aaron. And then Aaron goes from not only being clean, but chosen, set apart. This this oil marks Aaron as holy and special. We read about that responsibly, an allusion to that in our call to worship. By the way, the word Messiah for anoint is where we get the word Messiah, the Lord's chosen. So you're washed and chosen and and then clothed with special garments. Now, clothing is a uniform to demonstrate the priest's new reality. It would be nice, not in God's providence, but if I preached this sermon next week when I would be wearing my military uniform. 
We don't use uniforms that much anymore in society, but still, there's a uniform for a police officer or a soldier, scrubs for a nurse, maybe a white jacket for a doctor, or cleats and jerseys for an athlete. And these uniforms have at least two purposes. It may better equip you to do your job. The police officer's belt has his pistol and his radio and his handcuffs and all of his gear. But it also conveys a reality. The uniform reminds you and the people around you that you have a purpose. You have a job. Right? Uniforms enhance your work, but they also proclaim your reality. In fact, Elizabeth says that I always stand straighter and walk faster when I'm wearing my uniform. Well, the priest's clothes, especially the high priest's clothes, were full of significance. You can read about them in Exodus 28. We're not going to go there, but you can dig deeper. But let's just say a few things. First, they are gorgeous. They're multicolor. They're set with jewels and gold adornments. They're, they're made with the best craftsmanship. And this beauty has a purpose. Right? They're, they're connecting the priest to the tabernacle. The clothes are the exact same color as the tabernacle walls and curtains. The, the designs are similar or the same. They even use the same words for the way it's fabricated and produced. In our passage here in chapter 8, the clothes are placed on Aaron the high priest in increasing order of holiness, starting with the least holy, his inner robe, and then moving out to the, the ephod and the breastplate, which, which represents Israel, the 12 gemstones, and then the turban, which has a gold plate, which literally says, holy to the Lord. So there's this increasing levels of holiness. So the clothes, which look like the tabernacle... They also increase in holiness like the tabernacles. You get closer to the Holy of Holies. And they show that Aaron now belongs there, serving God's presence as his priest. Well, I said four things happened to Aaron. There's one more, the sacrifices. So let's read from 14 to verse 30. Then he, Moses, brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. And he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and the skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with the fire outside the the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces of the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the side of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh and out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord. He took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. 
And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was the portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Now, if you've been here for previous sermons, all this should sound very familiar. These were all the sacrifices that have been laid out in the last seven chapters. And, and here you see them, but notice the order. It's different from what's presented for you know, the, the highest one, the burnt offering, dedication first and moving down, moving to sin. Here sin starts because that's where we are with God apart from him. And then the burnt offering are dedicated. And then the ordination offering, which is sort of a modified fellowship offering, peace with God, fellowship with him. Now, you might have a question, what is it with the blood on the ear and the thumb and the big toe? And sometimes when we go back and read these things, we just need to be honest and say we're not certain. It could be that covering all of the person, the ear standing for the head and the hand and the feet, what, where you walk and what you do and what you say and think could be symbolizing the whole person. What we do know is blood is always necessary for a covenant. It shows the seriousness of the covenant in Exodus 24, as God has brought Israel out of Egypt and Moses has come down after reading, receiving revelation from Sinai, he, he kills a bull and sprinkles the people with the blood to show that they are connected to God in the covenant. certainly has much to do with forgiveness of sins. And so, so on the ear and the thumb and the foot, it shows that the priest and, and the altar too are set apart. They are consecrated, cleansed to meet God with his people. But before we move on from consecration to the second requirement, there's one more question. Who's acting as priest in all of this? It's not Aaron. It's Moses. Moses is the one who washes, anoints, and clothes. Moses is the one who offers the sacrifice. Moses is the one who, who initiates the wave offering before the Lord. It's Moses who receives the portion of the sacrifice to eat, which is the priest's share. So what's Aaron's job? Well, it's hard to tell. It seems like most of the time Aaron is the worshiper where Moses is, is doing the role of the priest and Aaron is participating. But but you would notice the transition. Did you notice in verse 27 where Moses takes the offerings and he places them in the hands of Aaron and his son and 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 they offer it as a way of offering a wave offering is a way of offering a sacrifice that only a priest would do. And, and so what we see here is Aaron is in this middle stage. Very soon we'll read that he has to, to be inside the, the, the tabernacle for seven days. And, and so for these seven days, this period, he's no longer part of the congregation. He's no longer an ordinary Israelite, but he's also not fully a priest. There's, there's the seven-day waiting period full of tension. What will happen? It's almost a bit like being a teenager. You have, you know, if you're a teenager right now, you might, you might feel that tension. I remember it. It was a while ago, but you know, you're... You're no longer a child. You have all kinds of growth and ability and you can do things that, that, that a little boy or girl can't do. But yet you're not, you're not fully an adult. You're not physically or mentally or, or, or matured or you don't have the resources of an adult. So you're in this in-between. It might be a, a slightly awkward phase and it's a bit of a tension. What will you turn out to be? Well, that's where Aaron is. And that's consecration. Aaron and his sons are set apart as special. They're waiting for a new reality. Now, let's just contrast that from the view of what you're told about how to construct your reality today. What's the message? Look deep inside yourself. Follow your heart to find yourself. Well, these things all happened to Aaron. 
Right? This is farthest that could be possible from this. This is a reality for Aaron that is from the outside. It's defined by what the Lord tells Moses. And then Moses performs them on Aaron. You see, Aaron can't make himself a priest. This is a reality that must be done to him and for him. But it's a work that God does that leads to complete transformation. And so you have consecration, which then leads to transformation, or we could even say a new creation. So let's continue reading on, starting at verse 31, and we'll read the chapter 9, verse 6. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it, and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. On the eighth day... Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a peace offering, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And I have a question for you. It was a question that I asked. I wrote in the side of the text as I was studying. Why seven days? Why seven days? That was one commentator said, well, I mean... It could be that it takes a lot longer to become holy than to be defiled. You can be defiled in a minute, but, but holiness is, is more intense. It's the number of completeness. That's, that's true. I, I thought, okay, that's, that's helpful, but I think there's something more, and I couldn't get it. And then I, I ran across a commentary that it gave an answer that I bet any young Israelite child at the time could have told you. What does seven remind you of? It reminds you of creation. Right? And here it's saying that God by dwelling with his people, is now an act of, of new creation. Now, if you've been here in the past, I've, I've hammered home the fact that the tabernacle is connected to Eden and creation. Eden is that temple-like garden where God was present with his people. The tabernacle looks back to that. There's, there's sevens all over the tabernacle when it's constructed. You see similar language between God creating, and it was so, and, and the Lord creating, the, building the tabernacle, and he did as the Lord commanded. There's, there's exact words and parallels. And you see now how closely the priests are connected to the tabernacle. Both the tabernacle and the priests are washed, and they're anointed. The clothing is the same material and construction as the tabernacle, and increases in holiness. And in chapter 8, Moses did seven times as the Lord commanded. Again, that, that refrain back to tabernacle, construction, creation. What I think is happening here is, is God is creating a new man who, in verse 
835, it says, you will perform what the Lord has charged. That's, that's, a, that's a very good translation. Um, literally, it says, for seven days you shall guard the things of the Lord that must be guarded. That word is shamar. That looks back to the same word that God gave Adam in Genesis 2.15, where the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Shamar. It's a priestly word. And so in the seven days, God is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something new with Aaron. I am to bring me to my people. This is actually something similar. You will see on a, on a smaller scale what happens when the leper is brought back into the community in chapter 14. The leper will also have a, a sin offering and he'll have blood on his ear and thumb and big toe. And then he will have to wait, not in the tabernacle, but outside the camp for seven days. And then he moves in away from death into the presence of God. It's moving towards God and increasing life. Seven days new creation. In some ways, this is similar to circumcision. Right? Even, it's clear that even in the Old Testament, the physical sign of circumcision points to that new creation, the heart being made spiritually alive, and there's that seven plus one, the seven days you wait, and on the eighth day the child is circumcised. We see creation, seven days, Something new, God is working. Circumcision, seven days, something new. Now ordination, seven days they wait. And then chapter nine, God is now doing a new thing through Aaron. And what you see here is that God is taking a limited, limited, fallible, sinful man and sets him apart for a special purpose. Now we're not going to read all the rest of chapter nine, but if you did, you would see an almost exact repetition of what Moses did in chapter eight. But now it's Aaron. Now it's the high priest. And commentators notice a beautiful irony here. In verse 2, Aaron offers a bull. Does anyone remember another story with Aaron and a bull? It doesn't have a real good track record when it comes to bulls. In Mount Sinai, when, when Moses is up for 40 days and 40 nights and God's rescued them, but there's no sign of him and the people say, we don't trust this God anymore. We need something physical and tangible. Aaron, make us a God that we can worship. And so he commits unthinkable treason, and spiritual idolatry by shaping a bull and offering sacrifices to it. By the way, that is following your own heart. Right? That, that's doing what, where your feelings lead you. And whenever a created being defines their purpose or their worship in their own terms, it is idolatry, no matter how beautiful it seems. The beautiful beauty of God's grace is that he takes a sinful, finite man who failed and he transforms him into his high priest. Aaron offers the bull as the Lord commands and he receives it. This is redemption. This is salvation outside of yourself. And it is the hope that is woven through the Bible and right through Leviticus. In the following verses now, Aaron offers sacrifices to God for the people. Skip to the end of chapter 9 and read the last three verses, starting in verse 22. Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. God responds with fire. It is the presence of him meeting with his people in his glory. They see his beauty and majesty. But as it says in 835, they will not die. They did not die. And the people who see God fall down and cry out in worship. And God's purpose in creation has come in part to pass that they see his glory in their presence. 
They are not preoccupied with the small trivialities of their heart. They have not found themselves. They are caught up in the infinite glory of their Redeemer, and they have found God. Well, detectives, what do you see? That consecration, being set apart, it leads to new creation, this new reality. Now, Aaron's rite of passage, ending in God's fiery presence, was much more powerful than the forge ceremony that I experienced at basic training. It was, was not just a mere ritual to focus a certain mindset, but it brought about something new. And so why does that matter? Because you have a reality that is even greater than Aaron's. In Christ, you have a new reality. What does it mean to be a Christian in the biblical sense? Not that I grew up as a Christian, not that I think that Jesus was a good teacher and the Christian faith has done some good for the world, but when you say, I realize that I have no hope. On my own, I am lost. I cannot find myself. My only chance is to be connected with God's anointed Jesus. And so I trust him for his, in his life and his death and his resurrection to be his atonement for my sin and claim him as Lord. When you do that, your life is changed. Now, I've been railing against the whole choose-your-adventure type of reality. But I should say that when you find Jesus, it doesn't mean that you become boring, a 2D cardboard cut out of the perfect Christian. Now, the, the freeing truth is that when you find your hope in Jesus and accept that you can't find yourself, that Jesus allows you to live as he created you to be in all of your individuality to his glory. As Irenaeus said, a man fully alive. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, if he's connected to him, if he's bound to him, he's a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Well, there's a big problem. You may say, well, why then do I struggle to feel that new reality? Tell me if you've ever felt this way. Yeah, I believe. I, I believe when I sing. I believe when I hear. Sometimes, if I'm honest, I feel apathetic. I, I know. Maybe I can tell you all about the order salutis, but in everyday life, I struggle with experiencing the joy of that reality. Or maybe I know that God's law is good, but it's hard for me to accept or understand why a particular commandment is good. I, I know that murder is wrong, but... But does it really matter what two consenting adults do in private? I, I, I believe Scripture is, is true, but it seems to have lost power in my life. Have you ever felt like that? If you have, you're human, and, and maybe even more likely today, as, as there are competing values around, if you have those questions, those struggles, those doubts, part of your problem may be that the world's view of self-created reality is rubbing off on you. It says to you, the only reality that matters is you. You can't know if there's a God up there. It's just this physical stuff that matters here and now. And if, if you want to invent a God in your head to help you out, go knock yourself out. But it's really just you in the end. And when you're pounded by that every day and every side, it's not surprising that it rubs off on you. Here, I'll put a plug in for our fall Sunday school class and the adults. We're going to be examining how this, this view of, of individual fulfillment has come in our culture and how the world has gotten it and so that we can identify it and guard it in our own hearts and then help those we disciple. I've already seen a couple of the videos. It's been helpful to me. It's influenced the sermon. You should come. But it's not surprising with this tidal wave of self-reality that it can swamp the flames of your passion for God so that your faith sputters. And how do you fight that? Well, first of all, don't soak in 
and accept those self-destructive narratives out there, but instead immerse yourself in God's story for you and claim his power. That's what we're doing tonight. The, The rite of passage where Aaron enters one way and comes out another is a powerful picture of what God does in creation. And it's an example for us. Now, there's differences. Uh, Aaron's new creation wasn't a regeneration, as, as Paul would talk about. There's, there's a different waiting time. Seven is different from instant re- creation in Christ. But, but there are many of the same realities and parallels that are used to set Aaron and his sons apart now apply to you. What did the Apostle Paul say as, as we read to the church in Corinth? You were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified. I remember thinking that's, that's the exact same thing that happened to Aaron and his, his son. As they're being prepared for the ministry, for, for what they're about to do. Paul says this is happening to all of you now as the priesthood of God. Paul also uses the language of clothing. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He's using baptism here as a spiritual reality. Having put on Christ literally means having dressed or clothed yourself with Christ. Now, I encourage you to look at the daily Bible readings. It goes into depth there. But what happens, just like Aaron and his sons were clothed, you get to put on, completely identify with the reality of Jesus. Now, we might not quite get the clothing analogy today because you have so many and you take it off and you put it on and, and then there's accessories for this and that. Well, Jesus is not just one accessory that you put on when you feel religious. He is your new reality. He is who you are. You are connected to Christ in the most intimate way. His righteousness, your status as family, that, that, that new reality is who you are. And unlike Aaron, whose clothes merely remind you of the tabernacle, John says Jesus is the tabernacle. You are clothed with the word made flesh dwell among you. And his spirit lives inside of you. But these truths are are unveiled. They're foreshadowed in in Leviticus. And so you see, when when you examine them, you're not just doing it as a detective would, disinterested, but as a child who's just inherited a fortune. And you're reading the inheritance and saying, this is mine. This is true for me. I'm a child of the king who can approach him in his glory because I am clothed with Jesus and part of his family. And what Leviticus and the rest of the Old Testament does is serve as a backdrop for the good news of Jesus. Any good story or piece of music builds to a climax. And of course, the most exciting part is that end. But if you take out the other parts, you might still be able to understand it, but you lose the power, the climax. In the American church, we often preach a very shallow gospel. You might have a sin problem. You may have done a few bad things. You may need a little help so that God will bless you and let you into heaven if there is one. And that results in sometimes a very shallow understanding of what the faith is. I've, I've talked to kids who are struggling with their faith and I'll, I'll ask them, are, are you young teens, are you a Christian? And sometimes they'll say, well, I believe Jesus died for me. What, what, what does that mean? Well, I'm a sinner and he died for that. I, I believe he's my savior. And you ask a little bit more and they can't go any deeper and That's a perfectly good answer, and I'd be great for a five-year-old, but it can be a little concerning when that's what you hear from a 15-year-old, and then a few years later I hear, Pastor, I'm not sure if I believe any longer. You see, the shallow gospel leads you vulnerable to the, the onslaught of what's coming today, but the gospel is so much deeper. And Leviticus is part of that story that builds the climax. It tells you that God designed you to be in his presence and you have no hope on your own. You need a sacrifice. You need to be set apart. You can't be made right with God any more than Aaron can be made a priest by himself. But you have a better Moses. 
You have a better rite of passage than Aaron, as impressive as it was. If you have trusted Jesus, then you've been baptized into Christ. That physical baptism is a promise of what God does to you when you receive Jesus by faith. As Paul says, you are washed. You are justified. You are sanctified. People of God, in Christ, you have that new reality. A reality that shapes you far more than basic training or even a high priestly ordination. And when you feel that call to find yourself... Run to Jesus. Let this new reality in Leviticus that you see for Aaron remind you that your story in Christ is even greater. This is who I am, alive in Jesus, a new creation. And so this week, arm yourself with this truth to do battle with your doubts and your apathy and to live out who you are in this reality. Please pray with me. Father, we do receive different and varied visions of what is good from either all sides, everywhere we turn. And so we cling to your word, that you alone provide our hope. We can only be found when we are found in you, having not a righteousness of our own, but that which comes in Christ. And so could each one of us go out savoring Jesus, rejoicing in him, ready to serve you this week. For we pray this in his powerful name. Amen.